Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. I can't tell you how great it is to be with you today. It, uh, <laughs> just wait, I haven't even preached yet, so. Uh, it was um, December 31st, 2013 that we left Watertown Free Church. We've been back a few times for funerals and weddings, and uh, we snuck in last Christmas Eve, which was wonderful to be a part of that service. But this is the first time in nine and a half years that I have actually given the Sunday morning sermon. So uh, hope I still have the stuff. But... Uh, well, <laughs> But it's, it's good to be home. And it's summertime. Uh, in fact, we're about halfway through the summer, aren't we? And summertime is picnic time. Uh, especially here in Minnesota, when we have such a narrow climatic window to eat outside, um, we make the most of our summertime to, have, uh, to enjoy picnics. Picnic season traditionally begins... Um, about Memorial Day, runs through the 4th of July, and ends with, with Labor Day. And in between, we have uh, family picnics, neighborhood picnics, town picnics, company picnics, and church picnics, kind of like the one you had last Sunday over at Lake Rebecca. So I guess my timing is a little off for this sermon. It's a week late, but... Uh, Hey, I'm retired, so um, I can't always keep up with things like I used to. Uh, I'm just glad I made it here at all, okay? Uh, but I have great memories of uh, the outdoor services and picnics that we had here uh, at Watertown Free. Many of them were at Lake Rebecca. Uh, I can remember a couple of memorable ones out at the Butenhofs, where we had uh, pork chops on a stick and we had baptisms in their pool. Those were some special times. Um, but I've always loved church picnics. Going back to my childhood in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Grew up in a little free church there. Uh, in those days, church people were a little more formal, a little more straight-laced. And so when I go to the Sunday school picnic and see a deacon whacking a softball, or one of the WMS ladies uh, in a relay race with an egg on a spoon in her mouth, uh, that was just a sight to behold. And uh, it helped to humanize those people whom I otherwise would hold in awe. Uh, so we, yes, we love our picnics. And we hate to miss out on them. There was a six-year-old girl a uh, pastor's daughter, not, not our Mallory, but it was a different pastor's daughter, uh, who had been so naughty during the week that her mother told her that she couldn't attend the Sunday school picnic on Saturday. And that was just the worst kind of punishment imaginable. But when the day came, the mother relented and, and said that indeed the little girl could attend the Sunday school picnic. But the girl's response was surprisingly negative. She started to pout 
And her mother said, well, what's the matter? I, I thought you'd be glad to go to the picnic. And the little girl said, it's too late. I've already prayed for rain. Say, so yes, we love our picnics. But you know, even the most relaxed, informal picnics require some advanced planning, some organization. You have to decide on the menu, who's going to bring what. Do you need a shelter, electricity, a grill, running water? How many people will there be? In our scripture passage this morning, we read about a huge mega picnic for which no one was prepared. No one except Jesus. Let's hear God's word as it comes to us in John 6, verses 1 to 13, a very familiar portion to you, but I pray we can see it and hear it with new eyes and ears today. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and, and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. You know, there's one miracle of Jesus that, is, that, that made it into all four of the Gospels. And it's this one the feeding of the 5,000. So there must be a reason for that. God must want us to grasp something from this event. Uh, he must have something important for us to learn because he reinforces the message four times. Now this account begins, here in John chapter 6, with the disciples of Jesus facing a seemingly impossible situation. It's at the end of a long day of ministry, and Jesus notices that all the people who've followed him out to this remote location are getting hungry. And so he says, let's have a picnic. And the only problem is nobody's brought any hot dogs or potato salad. 
And that low rumbling sound is not distant thunder, but uh, about 5,000 stomachs beginning to growl. But Jesus sees in this situation a teachable moment for his disciples. And as verse 6 says, he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus wasn't phased in the least. He had everything under control, but he wanted to involve his disciples in the solution to the problem. This was a golden opportunity to, to test them, to teach them, to train them. Does Jesus still do that? Does he ever put his present-day disciples, like you and me, in impossible situations to test our faith, to help us grow, grow up spiritually? Well, you bet he does. <laughs> it may not involve feeding 5,000 people on the spur of the moment, but he customizes those tests. They're specific to us, to our unique personalities and needs and circumstances and, and to our level of maturity. I'll give you an example from my own life. And specifically, what happened after I left the pastorate of Watertown Evangelical Free Church and became lead chaplain of Parkview Care Center in Buffalo. Now, I loved pastoring this church, and I didn't have any ill feelings toward anyone or anything, but after serving for so many years, I began to have a growing sense that it was time for a change, and that the church needed uh, some fresh vision and, and new leadership. I wanted to stay in active ministry, but, uh, but I felt, as I was getting close to 60 years old, Oh, yes, for those days again. But uh, as I was getting close to 60 years old, that it was, it was maybe time to slow down a bit. And uh, it was getting to be a little challenging to keep up with some of the new trends in, in, in worship and in church ministry and especially the use of technology um, and administrative duties and board meetings, just somehow weren't as fun as they used to be. And so I was drawn to uh, nursing home chaplaincy because it would free me to be involved in direct personal ministry to people without all that other stuff. You'd think that, right? Well, all I can say is that God has a great sense of humor and I had no idea what I was in for. My predecessor at Parkview Care Center was considered by many to be the gold standard of Elam Care chaplains. Uh, it's now called Cassia Care. Um, and I love the guy. We are dear friends to this day. In fact, he and his wife are going to be visiting Emery and I this, this coming week. But we are di very different. He is uh, much more of an assertive, type A personality than I am. I know, I know that's hard to believe. But uh, in his 14 years, 14 years at Parkview, 
he developed an incredibly comprehensive, multifaceted ministry to the residents, to the staff, to the families. And he was also an innovator in the use of technology. And I found out I'd be operating four different computerized systems. And as chaplain, I was a department head, part of the management team. And so that meant meetings, committee assignments, uh, administrative responsibilities. I was to hold three worship services a week on the main floor, three in memory care, lead a morning men's group, uh, daily devotions for the maintenance staff, uh, weekly Bible study for tenants of a low-income uh, apartment on the same campus, and that's just half of it. And I kind of wondered how I was going to do any personal visitation of people, uh, but that's what I was facing. Well, I was absolutely overwhelmed. And you can ask Emery, I was a basket case. I, I felt these uh, enormous expectations. And of course, so many people came up and told me, well, you certainly have some big shoes to fill. I thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. This is a job for a much younger person. And it seemed like I'd been given an impossible task. One that I felt totally inadequate to handle. Have you ever been there? I'm sure the disciples felt that way when Jesus told them to feed this massive crowd of hungry people. Now in the other three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have Jesus telling them directly, you give them something to eat. Wait, what? So how did the disciples respond to this test of faith? Well, actually, we find three different responses to Jesus' challenge. First, Jesus uh, turns to Philip, who was originally from that area of Bethsaida, and he asks, uh, where, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You know, what kind of bakeries do you have around here? And uh, now Philip, Philip is a number cruncher, and he does some quick mental calculations before announcing in verse 7, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each of them to, to have a bite. Come on, Jesus. You know how much we have in the, in the disciples' support fund. It, it barely, uh, barely uh, feeds the 12 of us. How are we supposed to come up with, with what? Uh, enough money to, to feed a crowd of, what, 10,000, if you include the women and children? Our resources are totally inadequate. There's absolutely no way we can do this. And so Philip's response to Jesus' faith test is, we can't do anything. We can't do anything. 
Are you like Philip? A lot of us are. We deal in cold, hard facts. We want to know the bottom line. Let's be practical, we say. Let's be logical about this. And so we take every factor into account in evaluating a situation. Every factor, that is, except the most important one. And that is the presence and power of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Now, amazingly, or or maybe not so amazingly, Philip was oblivious to that, even though Jesus was right there with him. All Philip could see was the impossible problem before him, instead of the God with whom all things are possible. There's a story told of two prisoners who shared one small cell with no light except, except what came through a tiny window about three feet above eye level. Both prisoners spent a lot of time looking up at that window. One of them saw the iron bars in the window, those obvious ugly metallic reminders of reality. This is, this is my situation. And as days went by, that prisoner grew more discouraged, more bitter, more angry, more hopeless. But the other prisoner looked through that window to the stars in the night sky above. And hope welled up in that prisoner's heart as he started to think about the possibility of life, starting a new life in freedom beyond that prison cell. Two prisoners looking at that same window. One saw bars while the other saw stars. And the difference in their vision made a huge difference in their lives. What do you see? Bars or stars? The situation or the solution? The odds that are against you or the God who is for you? Now, Philip could only see the limitations, the restrictions, the impossibilities. So he said, we can't do anything. Now, the other disciples specifically mentioned in this story is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he seems to be more open to the possibility that, well, maybe there is something we can do for these people. So Philip said, we can't do anything. Andrew said, well, maybe there's something. And so while Philip is burning up the batteries on his his pocket calculator, Andrew circulates among the crowd looking for groceries. We might call him a careful optimist. 
At least he's seeking a solution, even though it's a purely human one at this point. And finally, he comes across a boy with a picnic lunch. And he brings the boy up to Jesus and says in verse 9, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, now there's some initiative. Way to go, Andrew. But even as he says the words, he, he catches himself and he begins to, to feel silly and doubt takes over. And with an embarrassed laugh, he, he dismisses his own suggestion. Verse 9 continues, but what are they among so many? How far will they go among all these, these people? So Andrew, Andrew scores a little higher on the test than, than Philip. But then he wimps out. And uh, he too is overwhelmed by the circumstances. Yes, he caught a, a fleeting glimpse of the stars, but in the end, those bars were just too intimidating. We can be a lot like Andrew, can't we? Starting off strong with a, a surge of optimism and enthusiasm. And um, yeah, I'm going to meet that, that need in my community. I'm going to tackle this this challenging project. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a new, new ministry. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reconcile with that person. Um, I'm going to reach out to, to my neighbor. But then reality hits us in the face and we don't follow through. We don't go the distance and we kind of fizzle out like a spent bottle rocket on the 4th of July. Maybe there's something. Uh, no. But there is someone in this story who passes the test with flying colors. The one person who is the real example for us to follow isn't even a disciple at all, at least not one of the 12. But he's that young lad who, who came with childlike faith and gave what he had to Jesus. Philip said, we can't do anything. Andrew said, well, maybe there's something. But this boy said, in effect, to Jesus, Here's my everything. He was just a kid. But here's just one of several instances where Jesus holds up a child as an example of real faith. The boy didn't have much. Just five small loaves of coarse bread, a couple of little sardines. But it was enough. Why? Why? Because Jesus was enough. And by the way, Jesus is still enough. And in that meager offering, Jesus found the materials of a miracle. 
Here's what I hope we can all learn from this story. This is the, the, really the main point of this message. And it is that Jesus can take whatever we offer him and do the impossible. As we continue in the story now, Mark's gospel fills in some of the other details, like how Jesus had the disciples organize the people into groups of hundreds and fifties and had them sit on the grass. It was all done decently and in order, uh, not with a mob of hungry people rushing for food. And so Jesus wanted to partner with his disciples. He wanted to involve them, to let them help out, to be a part of this miracle. And then, in a brief, almost matter-of-fact way, John describes what happened next. Verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Every last one of those Eight to 10,000 people were fed. And they didn't just get a bite, a nibble, a supermarket sample on a toothpick. They all had a satisfying meal. Not only was there enough, there was more than enough. And then 12 baskets of leftovers were collected. You know, carry out box for each of the 12 disciples. Isn't that fun? What a a generous, giving God we have who delights to lavish his good gifts on his children. A God of abundant blessings. And with this miracle, Jesus was telling his disciples, then and now, hey guys, have you figured it out yet? I'm here. I can handle it. I've got this. So forget about your limitations and inadequacies. That's a given. Just give me what you have and I'll do the rest. When you surrender yourselves to me in faith and obedience, there's no telling what can happen. You see, in the hands of Jesus, a little becomes a lot. And we see this truth throughout the Bible. I mean, what did Moses have? Just a shepherd's staff. But when he threw it down before the Lord, it became a miracle-working instrument. All David had were five smooth stones and a sling, but God made them sufficient to bring down a powerful giant. In fact, it only took one of those stones. A poor widow came to the temple with a penny for an offering, but Jesus said she gave more than anyone else. And with a young boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish, Jesus fed a multitude. What do you have? Not much, you say. 
as the late Harold Linzel has said, even the smallest and most insignificant object which is wholly dedicated to God in the hands of a willing believer may be used for God's glory and the accomplishment of his will. I still like the old saying, it's not your ability, but your availability that God wants. He doesn't call the qualified, but he always qualifies the called. God can enable you if he has you. But first, you need to give him your time, your resources, yourself to him. So what's your response? How well are you doing on the test of faith? I know how easy it is to be like Philip, to see only the obstacles when it seems so impractical to trust Jesus for something beyond my limited resources. And I've been, been like Andrew, initially hopeful and expectant, but and getting cold feet and backing away from taking a, a bold step of faith. But oh, how I want to be like that boy who saw only the total sufficiency and adequacy of Jesus and was willing to give what he had and let Jesus do the rest. Well, as I began my ministry at Parkview Care Center, despite being almost paralyzed with fear and doubt, I told Jesus, okay, Lord, you've, you've called me here. I believe that. You've given me this ministry. I know I can't do this on my own. So here I am. It's all I've got, but I abandon myself to you. And I held on to a motto that I had learned years before, and now it became my constant mantra. Now I don't want to use that word. My constant refrain or whatever. It's this. For this, I have Jesus. For this, I have Jesus. And somehow I made it through that first day and that first week, even though I really wanted to quit. The first month, my dear wife, Emery, was a huge support and a big help with some of that technical stuff, like putting together slide presentations for my worship services and getting me going on that. And it was a really hard adjustment. It took time. But the Lord met me every step of the way. His grace was more than enough. And by the end of my first year, I was no longer trying to maintain and duplicate everything my predecessor had done. But I had begun to take an initiative to initiate things to make the ministry my own. And that felt really good. And in that whole process, I began to feel more energized. And yes, I even felt younger 
in that whole process. By the time I retired, almost two years ago now, after seven years as chaplain of Parkview Care Center, I can honestly say that I came to love my job, love the people I worked with and served, and most of all, I came to love my Jesus more than ever. Now Emory and I are on a new adventure. Retirement, major downsizing, moving to a new community, living in a multi-generational household, uh, finding a new church family, and just figuring out who we are and what we're supposed to do at this stage of life. So all this has brought new tests of faith. But the Lord continues to prove himself faithful. And yes, he continues to do the seeming, the seemingly impossible as we surrender to him and follow him in faith and obedience. And so with, with deep gratitude and, and a heart full of praise, I, I say with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Paul, for sharing from God's word. And thank you for worshiping with us. Couple of quick announcements. Um, this church continues to bless the community and those around us. Continue your worship this morning in the giving of tithes and offerings. You'll see the giving spots in the back, also online or through your mobile device. Give like the little boy. Not because God needs it, but because he calls us to give our everything. And that includes not only our financial resources, but our time and our energy as well. Thank you. Um, also, I, I don't know if you know this, I'm sure you didn't, Pastor Paul, but for our benediction this morning, I picked the exact same passage that you did. So um, I think it's great how the Holy Spirit works like that sometimes. So here this morning's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.